0: It is Christmas in July here at CBC. What a great song that is, though, of longing and anticipation. At one time, the people of God longed for the first coming of Messiah, of the Savior, who would rescue them from their sins, who would save them from the tyranny of death and Satan. And He came and He did that great work. And now, we as the people of God also live in a time where we are longing for the return of the Savior so that we might see him as he is, that we will no longer live by faith but by sight, and we will be with God forever. So what a wonderful song to sing. It's good to see each of you here this morning. Uh, Please do be in prayer for the many of of our members who are traveling and some who are ill. Uh, We trust that the Lord will give them grace as they are apart from us. It is a privilege for me, as it is every week, to get to open the Bible with you. I rejoice in that opportunity. So let's go to the Lord now together and pray and ask for his help as we look to the Bible. Let's pray. (coughs) Our Father in heaven, we have acknowledged this at least a couple of times since this service has started. It's good for us to remind ourselves of what we are. We are fallen men and women. And we are in desperate need of your grace and your help. We rejoice, Father. We thank you as our brother Alan did so beautifully, that for many of us in this room, our identity now, though, is in the Lord Jesus. That He has lived a perfect life for us and died an atoning death for us and took His life back up again for us. That He prays for us. And He's coming back to get us. We rejoice in that reality and we thank You. Because you are such a good and merciful and gracious God, we pray that you would show up now as we look to your word that you've given us. Be our helper in this time. Fill me with your Holy Spirit that I might help these dear people. Give all of us eyes to see your truth and ears to hear it and hearts that would receive it and love it and rejoice over it, we pray. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, Christianity is not a religion of human achievement. Christianity is not a religion of human achievement. Rather, it is a religion of divine accomplishment. That makes Christianity utterly unique in the sort of scope of world religions. Christianity is not fundamentally about what you must do. Christianity is most fundamentally about what God has done through Jesus Christ. The message of the Bible is that sinners, guilty people, corrupt people, that's people like you, people like me, are declared righteous, justified, right? That's the word. Declared righteous, pronounced righteous by God on the basis of what Jesus has accomplished. And sinful, corrupt people like us, we are pronounced righteous on the basis of what Christ has accomplished in His work in our place is applied to us simply by faith. We turn from our own way. We turn from our sinning and we turn from our own notions of our own righteousness and our own merit and we cast ourselves in faith, trust, reliance, Upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And God says righteous. That's the message of the scripture. It's what we believe here at CBC. And that's what Christians around the world believe. And we praise God for the gospel. Last week we thought in Paul's letter to the Galatians. We thought about how if we make any work of the law. God's law that is. Not human law. If we make any work of God's law a part of the ground of our justification, then Jesus is of no use to us. Like zero. He profits us nothing. If we seek to weave anything that we do into the ground of our standing before God, Christ is of no use to us at all. We thought about how if we make any work of the law a part of the ground of our justification, then we are obligating ourselves to keep the whole law. And we are obligating ourselves to keep it perfectly at the heart level and at the thought level, not just in deed and action. This is true because we're either standing in Christ's merit or we're standing in our own merit. We're either standing in Christ by grace Or we are standing on our own works. And it's an either-or proposition, biblically. We thought about that together last week. And that's where we are picking up today as we look back to Paul's letter to the Galatians. And so if you have your Bibles, I hope that you do. Open up to Galatians chapter 5 as we continue to make our way through this most wonderful letter. This beautiful yet provocative and strong defense of the biblical gospel. We'll be considering today verses 4 through 12 of Galatians chapter 5. I would just to kind of read entire paragraphs together and to give us a little bit of context, we're going to begin with verse 2 of chapter 5. Before we move any further, I want to read God's word for us. So listen now as I do that. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 2. Look. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. To which we can say, Amen. Thanks be to God for His Word. I realize that's a little bit of an awkward ending for our text today. But we trust that everything that is in God's Word is inspired by God's Spirit. And we thank Him for every word of it. And so what I want to do now, friends, is to consider these verses, verses 4 through 12, sort of two primary headings, but then there are going to be points underneath those headings. I hope that I can make that clear, at least to the copious note takers in the room who care about that kind of thing. So sort of large heading for the first piece of the sermon is, as it pertains to the gospel, I'm going to give you three points. So as it pertains to the gospel, number one, there is no room. For works of the law. As it pertains to the gospel, number one, according to the Apostle Paul, there is no room for works of the law. You can put your eyes on verse four. We considered a lot of these great truths last week and we've been considering them for weeks as we've made our way through this letter. Paul makes it very clear that if you would be justified by the law, that literally means to be declared or counted righteous by the law then you are severed from Jesus. You are cut off from him altogether. And you have fallen away from grace. The people who would be fitting in that category, you who would be justified by the law, well who who is that? According to Paul's argument throughout this letter, if you're accepting any work of the law, whether that's circumcision, the keeping of a feast, an observance of days, or any other law that God has given, if you are keeping that law, in a meritorious way, as though you are earning God's favor, if you are requiring the keeping of a law for righteousness as part of the ground of your justification, then you are a person who would be justified by the law. Rather than being justified by Christ, rather than being justified by the grace of God in Jesus through faith, you are a person Who would be justified by the law. And you were seeking to do that. And Paul says, You're cut off from Christ and you have fallen from grace. No part, it doesn't matter how small, no part of justification can be attributed to works of the law. Because if it is, then we are renouncing Christ, we are renouncing the cross. And we renounce the grace of God. It's an all or nothing proposition. As we considered last week. There is no middle ground here. There is no synthesis. Of law and gospel that will save. It is either the law. Or it is gospel. And no man can keep the law. In a way that he might be saved. We must have the grace of God in Christ. If there is going to be any hope. For us. So that's. The first piece, when it pertains to the gospel, as it pertains to the gospel, number one, there is no room for works of the law. As it pertains to the gospel, according to Paul, number two, it is through the Spirit, by faith, that we await salvation. It is through the Spirit, by faith, that we await salvation. That first point that we just considered was from verse four. Shocking. The second point is from verse five. Let's put our eyes on there. For through the Spirit, by faith, Paul says, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. He's making an assertion about all true believers. That it is through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by the means of faith, that we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So it's through the Holy Spirit as opposed to what? It's through the Spirit as opposed to the flesh or self-effort. And it's by the means of faith as opposed to works, as opposed to doing or even obeying. Through the Spirit, by the means of faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. That is the hope of obtaining it. The hope of obtaining righteousness ultimately and finally. And obtain it, we will. And that's because of Christ and what He has done. It is because of God and His faithfulness. The wonderful biblical reality that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all working in perfect unity to save His people. This is the hope that Paul is talking about here, friends. Nothing less than this. It's the hope of salvation. It's the hope of being declared righteous on the last day. We've talked about this before. How do you know that you're going to make it? How do you know that you would be counted among the righteous on the last day? Because you sin and so do I. You struggle mightily at times and so do I. How could you ever have any confidence that you would finally be counted righteous? If we're going to have any confidence, if we're going to have any assurance, it's as clear to you I trust as it is to me. The ground of that hope and that confidence could never be in us. It has to be in the Lord Jesus Christ and His work. It has to be in the sovereign grace and the love of God the Father. It has to be in the work of the Holy Spirit to continue to change us and to continue to grant us faith that we might endure to the end. So friends, what I want us to see biblically, what Paul would have us see is that our present justification Having been declared righteous in Jesus now, that is inextricably linked to our final salvation. It is not as though you would be declared righteous today, justified in Christ today, one day to be lost. It's not as though, yes, you've been justified today, but then one day when you stand before God, we'll see how it goes. No way. Our present justification and our final salvation are inextricably linked because Christ has secured it all. Christ has accomplished everything that is needed in order that we would be saved, in order that we would be redeemed. In Christ alone we stand and He is all we need. He is our only hope and He is our perfect Savior. So as it pertains to the gospel, friends, number one, there is no room for works of the law. As it pertains to the gospel, number two, it is through the spirit by faith that we await salvation. And as it pertains to the gospel, number three, it is only faith that counts. It is only faith that counts. Let's put our eyes on verse six. Four, this is the ground. This is. Verses two through five, Paul has stated, are true because, verse six, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith working through love. You can feel this implied is what counts. Only faith working through love is what counts. Whether you're circumcised or not, it counts for nothing in Christ Jesus in terms of righteousness. In Christ Jesus, the works of the law in terms of righteousness count for nothing. That's true. But then notice too, I I want us to be sensitive to this, this issue. He also says that uncircumcision counts for nothing. You're not better if you're circumcised, that's true. But you're also not better if you're not. The point here is not the people who aren't circumcised are somehow getting it right in a way that the folks who are getting circumcised aren't. The point is that circumcision versus uncircumcision, it doesn't matter. Because in Christ, it's his work, received by faith, that counts. There is always, the reason I bring up the uncircumcision piece, is that there is always a temptation to self-righteousness. Always, in us. We are, by nature, self-righteous. We're self-righteous and others condemning, right? That's what we do. It's as natural as breathing. And so it would be easy in a situation like ours, in a church like ours even, to say, yeah, we, we understand the doctrine really well here. We understand that you don't need to be circumcised, and somehow that's a feather in our cap. Friend, I would discourage any of us from thinking that way. In Christ, it is faith that counts. Yes, it's good to have good doctrine. We're going to think about that more in just a moment. But let's not kid ourselves that we are earning favor before the Lord, even because we have good theology. The only thing in Christ Jesus that matters is faith. And that faith will be a living and a working faith. You see that, just like I do. Only faith working through love. The working that we do in Christ Jesus does not earn us righteousness. No way. The working that we do in Christ Jesus does not contribute to our righteousness. Christ has secured that for us. The working that we do in Christ is done completely in and by faith, and it is done through love. We work in faith driven by love. To which I want to say, huh, it sounds familiar. We've been considering that so much from this letter to the Galatians. We've seen that movie before, right? We work in faith through love. We don't work as though we understand ourselves to be earning anything. We don't work because we are afraid of God. We don't work because we simply fear judgment. God is going to damn me if I don't do this. No, we are motivated by something entirely different. We have been born again by the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And now our lives are changing. Our lives are far from perfect. That's true. Amen, somebody. They are far from perfect. But we are really different than we once were. Those in this room who know Christ, the transformed life is real. Imperfect, but real. And so now my heart's changing. Yours is too. My desires are changing. Yours are too. My affections are changing. What I value is changing. I love God now. Like I I didn't used to love Him before I knew Christ. I care about His glory now. I didn't used to give a rip about that. All I cared about was me. I love others legitimately. Like, I want to see other people flourish. I care genuinely about their well-being. Where does that come from? It comes from God's Spirit. You didn't produce that in you. And so the working that we do now is not bondage. It's a joy-driven working. It's a love-driven working. It's a gratitude-driven working. It's wonderful. It's a privilege To be able to work for the Lord. To be able to love Him and love others. To lock arms with other saints. And struggle well as we make our way through this pilgrimage to heaven. We certainly do work. We just don't work to earn anything. We work not for a judge or a slave master. We work for a loving Father. And we know Him. And we know his disposition, and we know that even though our work is imperfect, he values it because it's genuine and it's sincere. Praise God that that's true. So, friends, that was the first kind of briefer portion where we wanted to consider three things that Paul is telling us in this text as it pertains to the gospel: that there are no room, there's no room for works of the law; that it's through the Spirit by faith that we await salvation. And that in Christ Jesus, it is only faith that counts. But now I want us to turn our attention like Paul does, beginning in verse 7. And consider the false teachers. The teachers in the churches of Galatia that were teaching a false, an adjusted gospel. So the second portion of the sermon, the heading over it would be as it pertains to the false teachers. And we're going to consider six points about them. Some of these will be incredibly brief, some of them won't be. So, here we go. As it pertains to the false teachers, number one, they are a hindrance to the Galatians. Number one, they are a hindrance to the Galatians. Put your eyes on verse 7. Paul acknowledges that the Galatian Christians were running well. That means they were living well in service to Jesus. But rhetorically then he asks, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This is really important. I don't want us to miss this. In Paul's mind, turning to a different gospel, believing in an adjusted gospel, is nothing less than disobedience to the truth. Do you see that? Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You were running well. But now, because of these false teachers, you have turned to a different gospel and you have disobeyed the truth. To put any works of the law next to faith in Jesus. Because remember again, if you take a few things away from this sermon series, I'm sure this is one of them. Remember the distorted gospel that's being preached. It's not that these false teachers are telling Galatian believers to forsake Jesus altogether. They are still upholding Jesus and still upholding faith in Christ. But what they're doing is more subtle. It's not... Forsake Him altogether. It's like, no, trust Christ and. You need to be circumcised, right? Trust Christ and observe these days. Keep these feasts. Keep these commandments. Require faith in Christ plus these things are required for justification. That's the distortion of the gospel that's going on here. And so Paul is saying, in verse 7, you can see this like I can They've turned to this different gospel. They have disobeyed the truth. And they have done that because they have put works of the law next to faith in Christ. With respect to their justification. And Paul calls that disobedience. And it's interesting to me as I was thinking about this. This is not what we would typically think of as disobedience. When we think about disobedience in our sort of human terms. What do we think? We would typically think That disobedience equals not doing something that we are commanded to do. You're not doing what you're supposed to do, and therefore you've disobeyed. But it is in this case, friends, it is by adding things, it's by adding things that we must do that we would be disobeying the truth of God's word. That's interesting. So it's disobedience by addition. Not disobedience because we're not doing it. Right? So I've, I've talked about this a few times. And I'm going to keep talking about it. Because I care for me and I care for us. With respect to the age-old objection that is made against the faith-alone gospel... And the the objection that I'm talking about goes like this. Brother, if you preach that faith alone gospel and you tell people that they're completely right with God through faith apart from anything that they ever do, if you say that, then you're going to produce lawlessness. You're going to produce people who are lazy. You're going to produce people who are apathetic to the commands of God. You're going to produce people who don't work for God if you preach that message. You get this objection a lot. And as I've said before, that objection in and of itself demonstrates a fundamental misunderstanding of the Gospel, and it demonstrates a fundamental misunderstanding of conversion. We've already talked some today about the reality of the transformed life, right? So if the transformed life is real, which it is, that objection does not hold. That objection does not hold. If the transformed life by the power of the Spirit of God causing you to be born again, if that's real, then that objection does not hold water. Are there commands in the Bible? You better believe it. Do we need to exhort one another? You better believe it. Are we concerned for holiness? I pray we are. And the motivation we've already considered It's not threats. It's not judgment. It's love and joy and gratitude and those things. And what's interesting to me as I observe this this whole debate in this situation, when that objection is made, if you preach that faithful and gospel, you're going to produce lawlessness, you're going to produce people who are apathetic, people who don't care about holiness, whatever. The solution that's proposed is what? The solution that's proposed typically is by weaving, good works somehow by weaving law keeping into the ground of salvation that's how we combat that with human wisdom right we've got to make people have some skin in the game when it comes to holiness and so what we need to do is weave good works and keeping the law and those kinds of things into the groundwork of justification so that people will take it seriously And what's interesting about that kind of a proposal, that solution of saying, we've got to just put the law in there in a threatening way, that solution is the exact kind of disobedience to the truth that Paul is pointing out in verse 7. That solution is wrong. The way that we combat nominalism, Christianity in name only, Right? which is a problem in America, big time. Sometime when we start adult classes at Covenant, maybe we'll do a church history kind of class on evangelical history and think about why that's the case. So nominalism, Christianity in name only, people who claim to be Christians and don't live anything like one, is rampant. That's a problem. Antinomianism, against the law. People who will claim under the banner of grace that we just live however we want. That's a problem. But the way that we combat nominalism is with the gospel and union with Christ. And it's with this love and joy and gratitude and grace-driven obedience stuff. That's how you combat nominalism. And when it comes to antinomianism, the way that we fight that also, I would contend, is with gospel and union with Christ realities. But it's like, no, hey, we've got to have a conversation about what you even mean when you say the word grace. Because when you say grace, I hear you talking about it like it just means that we call things that are wrong, right? When you say grace, it sounds like you just want to overlook wrong. But that's not what grace is in the Bible, friend. Grace in the Bible is a way of dealing with things that are really wrong. So those are the ways that we go about having those conversations. We don't add things to the gospel in order to combat nominalism and to combat antinomianism, lest we make the same mistake that Paul is warning the Galatians against here. And so I care about that very much for CBC. I want us to live lives that are holy. I want us to look different than the world. I want us to honor God in the ways that we think and live together and I don't ever assume that we'll get there by heaping commands and laws apart from the gospel on people. I assume that we will get there through the gospel because of Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so let's be holy and let's understand where it comes from. So that's point number one with respect to the false teachers. As it pertains to the false teachers, they are a hindrance to the Galatians. They're hindering them by adding burdens to them. But number two, as it pertains to the false teachers, they are not God's messengers. They are not God's messengers. Paul is clear. Verse 8. This will be one of the briefest points that has probably ever been made in the history of this church. So write it down. July 22nd, 2018. Here we go. This persuasion is not from him who calls you, Paul says in verse 8. This persuasion he's talking about is to put works of the law next to faith in Jesus for justification. He's very clear. It's not from God. Him who calls you is God. These false teachers are not from God and they do not speak for him. Full stop. Number three, as it pertains to the false teachers. They must be resisted. Because of the danger of what they teach. They must be resisted because of the danger of what they teach. Put your eyes on verse 9. Paul says there, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He's using a kind of baking analogy. I don't know how many people are bakers in the room. I am not an accomplished baker. I'm just being real. Thank God for people who can bake. Even though it, you know, is isn't the best thing for me to eat and I like baked goods a lot. A little bit of leaven, a little bit of yeast, right? It doesn't take a lot of yeast in a lump of dough to leaven the whole lump. That's the point that's being made. A little bit. It contaminates. It spreads, right? Like a contagion through the whole thing. The point Paul's making is that this adjustment to the gospel, this distortion to the gospel is no small matter, right? These guys need to be opposed because of the danger of what they teach, you see, the temptation is to think that this is just some debate over doctrine, right? This is just some debate over theology. It's not that big a deal. But if the Galatians were to make that error, if they were to make that mistake and continue to follow these false teachers, they would, in truth, give it all away. This is how things go off the rails, Right? It seems small. Oh, that's no big deal. But friends, when it pertains to the truth once for all delivered to the saints, when it pertains to the Gospel message, nothing is a small thing. It's worth defending with our lives. By making this mistake, the Galatians would be giving the Gospel away. They would be giving the faith away. And this is why it is so important for them and for us today, that we would guard the biblical gospel. And so a lot of the comments that I've been making even this morning and that I've made throughout this sermon series that you guys, as I look out over the assembly, you guys are tracking. It's like, yeah, it's right. Those things that we're considering in defending the gospel of justification by the grace of God alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone, those things really matter that we would guard the gospel, that we would be really painstakingly clear about the gospel, about what it is and about what it isn't. And my concern with respect to the gospel in our day is that it is often compromised in these very small, like subtle ways that seem relatively insignificant to many. But they are far from it. Little adjustments can derail the whole thing. I'm convinced that nothing less than the gospel is at stake in a number of these conversations. Whether it's the objections that are made against faith alone. Or whether it's even the question of how we will be finally saved. When present justification and final salvation are being separated. You know, those kinds of conversations really matter because nothing less than the gospel is at stake. And so number four, as it pertains to the false teachers, we've already considered the first three points. Number four, they will not ultimately succeed. They will not ultimately succeed. Let's put our eyes on verse number 10. So as Paul has made it clear, the Galatians were running well. These false teachers hindered them from obeying the truth. But these guys are not from God. They need to be resisted because of the danger of what they're teaching. Paul then demonstrates that he has confidence in the Lord that it's going to be okay. He has confidence in the Lord. You see this, that you will take no other view than mine and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty. Whoever he is. Paul has confidence that the Galatians will come to their senses and agree with his view of the gospel, which is the biblical gospel. His confidence is that God will do this, that the Lord will guide them into all truth, and that the one who is troubling them, those who are teaching them the false gospel, will bear the penalty. So the Galatians are certainly accountable. We've considered this before. Chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul says to the churches, I'm astonished that you're turning to a different gospel. I'm astonished that this is happening. He's rebuking the people. And at the same time in this text, he says that those who are teaching you this false gospel will bear the penalty. They will face judgment for this. Yes, the Galatians are accountable and the false teachers will bear the penalty. This is a sobering reminder to me as a preacher of God's Word of the importance of getting the gospel right as a preacher. And it's a reminder of how big a deal it is that we would ever A pastor of this church, let's say, would ever lead anyone astray. It's a big deal. And so sort of a practical thing for you as you participate in body life here at CBC, pray for your pastors. Pray for your elders, right? Pray for us that we would rightly divide the Word of God, that we would not only understand it well, but herald the Gospel well, that we would preach truth and not error. And that when it comes to this issue, this most fundamental question of how sinners are justified and how sinners are reconciled to a holy God, that we would never get that wrong. And that we would rightly divide the word in such a way where we make clear distinctions between the gospel and the law and help people understand how those things fit together. And help people understand how the gospel drives the transformed life. Pray for us as we seek to preach the word to you. Let's consider point number five now as it pertains to the false teachers. This sermon might feel a little bit different today because it's kind of like fast moving. Just kind of keep you on your toes. Number five, as it pertains to the false teachers, they have misrepresented Paul. They have misrepresented Paul. Let's look at verse 11. The but there I think actually could be rendered and probably should be rendered as an and or a now. Just makes, it makes more sense in the original word. Uh, but it makes more sense in the context. It's not really contrastive here. So it read now, if I, or and if I, brothers and sisters, still preach circumcision, then why am I still being persecuted? Paul continues to reason with the Galatian Christians. He asks them this rhetorical question. If I'm still preaching circumcision as necessary, which he wasn't, he isn't, why would I still be facing persecution, which he was? These false teachers are undermining his apostolic authority. These false teachers are accusing Paul that he's not a legitimate apostle, that his doctrine is not in alignment with the Jerusalem apostles, that he's somehow an outcast, that he got his gospel from men and not God, that he's preaching this gospel to please people. We considered all of those accusations in Galatians chapter 1 and 2. I'm still being persecuted, Paul's saying. And that wouldn't be the case if I was still preaching circumcision like the false teachers are. Because if I was preaching circumcision like they are, the offense of the cross would be removed. So, important question that's begged of the text right there. You see that. In that case, if I were still preaching circumcision, the offense of the cross has been removed. Well, what is the offense of the cross? What's he talking about? From the perspective of of his opponents, right? The false teachers in the Galatian churches who would have perhaps been Jews at a minimum. We would say that they would have been Judaizing. They would have been individuals who would have still upheld the necessity of keeping the Mosaic law, right? That's who his opponents are. From their perspective, the cross, the work of Christ is particularly offensive. Offensive. Especially when we preach it like Paul does as this thing that is absolutely sufficient, right? Like as you preach the cross, the perfect life of of Christ, right, and his atoning death, as you preach that, his perfect sacrifice as completely sufficient to save sinners, that's offensive to someone who wants to uphold the place of the Mosaic law like these guys do as necessary. Right? for justification. It's a loss from their perspective of the salvific, moral, and even theological high ground, you could say. But it's also, for them, we trust, it would feel incongruous or inconsistent somehow with the teaching of the Old Testament Scripture. It's a real, legitimate wrestling. And we've thought about this a lot through Galatians because of how Paul has argued for the Gospel. He's argued for the Gospel from the perspective of redemptive history. And we thought about how the Bible has a point. And how the point of the Bible... Again, another thing I hope you take away... Is the plan of, God's plan of redemption... Accomplished through Jesus... Applied by the Spirit... All to the praise of the glory of God. The point of the Bible is God's plan of redemption... Accomplished through Jesus... Applied by the Holy Spirit... All to the praise of the glory of God. And in light of that reality... And in light of how God promised in Genesis 3.15 that He would send one who would crush the head of the serpent, who would ultimately save His people, and then from that point forward, God's covenant of redemption began to unfold. As we understand that reality biblically. And that underneath the banner of the covenant of redemption, we have other covenants. The Mosaic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant that came before that, excuse me. And then the Mosaic covenant. The covenant God made with David. And even the New Covenant. All of those would fit underneath the banner of the covenant of redemption. And as we understand the scripture that way, we could help our friend like these false teachers to say, look, we understand why you might think that it's inconsistent with the Old Testament teaching. That Christ has accomplished all that's necessary for salvation and that we would be saved completely by faith. But friend, look at the scripture. Look at how God has always saved. Go back to Father Abraham. How was he justified? He was justified by faith. By believing the promises of God long before circumcision was given to him. And that was 430 years before the law was given to Moses. God has always saved this way. We can refute those objections and I will cut myself off from talking about that anymore right now. But more broadly, what is the offense of the cross? More broadly, the offense of the cross is nothing less than the offense of the gospel. The fact that Jesus has accomplished the work of redemption in the place of people and that there's nothing, and by nothing I mean nothing, left to do. Jesus has made perfect atonement, and by perfect I mean perfect. He has accomplished perfect righteousness, and again by perfect we mean perfect. To be received by faith, not works. So what is there conceivably left to do? Answer, nothing. What? Could be, what could be possibly added to Jesus' work that would be necessary? Answer, nothing. What could be needed in light of what Jesus has done? Nothing. God, through Christ, by the Spirit, accomplishes salvation full stop. The Gospel says this. Why is the Gospel offensive? Here's what it says. It says to people, you're a sinner. Okay, that's offensive enough. You are not, regardless of what you think about you, you are not okay. It gets worse. You're really guilty before God, like really. Gets worse than that. You inherited guilt from Adam. Adam. You inherited your corrupt nature from Adam. And not only did you inherit that guilt and that corruption that then causes you to do all these sinful things, there is nothing that you can do in and of yourself about your guilt. Nothing. Nothing. There is nothing that you can do in and of yourself about your sin. There is nothing that you can do in and of yourself about your nature. You are unwilling and unable. You can't atone for your sins. You can't accomplish what you most desperately need. Your greatest need, you could never go get it. Can't be done. You are utterly dependent on another to justify you. What you must do then is to turn away from yourself. You turn away completely from you, from your preferred courses of action, from your sinning, and you turn away from your own notions of your own goodness. You agree with God in terms of what he has said about you, and you trust completely in Jesus. And you're declared righteous. That's the gospel message. And that is offensive to human beings. That's the offense of the cross. Those things that the gospel says, they don't sit very well with us. You know that. There was probably a time in your life when you bristled at that. And you know plenty of people in the courses of your daily living who would be absolutely appalled at that message. So that's number five. as it pertains to the false teachers, they misrepresented Paul. He's not preaching circumcision anymore. He's preaching this offensive gospel. But number six, lastly, as it pertains to the false teachers, this too will be brief, is Paul's sort of sarcastic desire for the false teachers. Paul doesn't like these dudes very much at all. That's clear. Paul wishes that those who unsettle the Galatians, the false teachers, it says in our text, would emasculate or mutilate, could be a rendering, that they would mutilate themselves. And this, of course, is a play on circumcision, right? These are strong words that Paul uses. He has clear disdain for these false teachers and how they are leading the Galatian believers astray. He's protective of them. And he's upset because the Galatians were called to freedom in Christ, not bondage to the law. And these false teachers were leading the Galatians straight into slavery, and we're going to consider that more next week, that we have been called to freedom, only freedom not to be used unto sin, freedom to be used unto love and righteousness. So as we conclude our time together, friends, I... I want to draw our attention back to the theme of today's service. That's that thing that's printed kind of in the upper left portion of that inside cover of your bulletin. We gather this morning to praise. The observant among us will notice there's a different theme every week. That theme is driven by the main emphasis of the sermon text. Just kind of letting you in behind the curtain there. We have gathered this morning to praise Jesus who is our hope. We have gathered this morning to praise Jesus who is our hope. He's our hope because he's accomplished everything. That's necessary for our salvation. But in light of that reality, that Jesus is our hope, I want to just ask you a question. It's a question that kind of hits me pretty good. How's your heart? How's your heart with respect to your life and how it's going? Are you quick to grumble? Are you quick to complain? Are you acutely aware, perhaps, of all the things that aren't going the way that you want them to? I ask this because you're looking at a grumbler and a complainer. Because we are natural-born grumblers, right? So here's the thing. Ultimately, like eternally speaking, grumbling makes no sense in light of what God has done for us in Christ. So don't misunderstand me. Life is really hard. Life is, in this fallen world is really hard. No doubt. We, I think, talked pretty honestly about that at many points here. Trials are real. And there are legitimate reasons for us to weep our eyes out this side of heaven. Last December, as we were thinking about mental and emotional health issues, I mean, I said, you know, depression is reason in a fallen world, apart from Christ of course. I mean Christ can bring hope into depression not that he necessarily takes it away but there's hope in the midst of it. That's not the point of what I'm saying to act as though life isn't hard or that trials aren't real or that there aren't legitimate reasons to cry. I don't mean to minimize any hardships in this room because I know that there are some serious hardships going on right now. I know that that's true. But one of the main reasons friends I become more convinced of this all the time. One of the main reasons that we need this, what we're doing right now, corporate worship every week of our lives, is so that we can have our hearts and our minds recalibrated. We need this on the regular so that we can have our hearts and our minds recalibrated to the truth of God and ultimately to be pointed to Christ and to be reminded of the hope that we have in Him. So I don't know about you, But I need my eyes taken off of my circumstances and put on Jesus every week. I need that. I need to be helped to look through my trials and see the utter faithfulness of God. Because there are going to be plenty of weeks like Joshua as he welcomed us this morning. Some of you maybe are coming in here having had a great week. It was like stellar, man. Couldn't have gone better. And for every one of those, there will be about eight people who will be saying, I had a hard week. I'm exhausted. I'm not doing well. It's the nature of life this side of heaven, right? And we need to be helped to look through those circumstantial things and through those real trials to see that God has been faithful every moment and that He never forsakes His own. You need that too. And as we gather this morning to praise Jesus, who is our hope, we both hope in him and we hope for him. We hope in him in that he has secured and purchased and guaranteed our salvation. We trust him. We rest in him. We abide in him. We hope in him. But then we also hope for him. What I mean by that is we hope for His return. We hope for the day. We long for the day when we'll see Him. There are so many things that we don't know, right? So many things. So many things that are unpredictable from our perspective. Because of the fallenness of the world in which we live and because of the fallenness of us, We don't know what hardships await us tomorrow or next week or next year, 20 years from now. We don't know. But we do know that Jesus is God. We do know that He's awesome. And we do know that it's the greatest thing in the world to be with Him. And we know that we will be with Him because He has seen to that. Praise be to His name. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we find ourselves at the end of so many of these passages of Galatians and these sermons that are preached thanking You for Jesus. And that's we trust appropriate. That we would thank you for him and what he has accomplished for us. The fact that he is our only hope and the only hope that we ever need. The fact that we hope in him because he has bought us and atoned for us and purchased us and he intercedes and prays for us. He's coming back for us. And we hope for him Because it is the longing of our hearts to be with Him, to see Him, and to see His glory that You gave Him before the foundations of the world. We thank You that You have promised us that. That no matter how difficult our lives are, and they're often really hard, that we always can cling to Christ. We pray that You would work that kind of faith and that kind of perseverance in us by Your Spirit. We pray that you would use us as a body to stir one another up to faith and good works and to love. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the sacrament of the Lord's table that you've given us. We thank you for this reality that we get to partake in together every week as we come to look upon and to see and to feel in tangible ways what Jesus has done for us. So we pray as we come this morning that this would be a time where we are assured that we are good with you and you are good with us. We pray that you would continue to give us the gift of faith. Use the church and use these means, your word, and the table, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.